You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. All right, thank you, Fred. Appreciate that. Um, So we're going to look at, I've titled this message. Uh, It's not really a sermon. I don't really preach. I'm a teacher, so kind of get ready for that. But I've titled it, George Whitfield and Benjamin Franklin, The First Post-Christian Friendship. Okay, there's some hyperbole in that. It's a little exaggerated. Maybe it's not the first one. What's post-Christian? We hear a lot about that these days in in our culture. But uh, these two individuals lived in the middle to late 1700s. And there you go. We have a picture. Whitfield, Franklin. One with a wig, one with long hair. And, uh, and, and so this, this era that they lived in, in some ways, you can kind of think of as when the first kind of turn in Western civilization towards being post-Christian started, okay? This was the beginning of Enlightenment skepticism. And what's interesting about this first period, what I call the first round, is that uh, the church, the Christian community, successfully uh, interacted with this first kind of touch, uh, taste of enlightened skepticism, and, uh, and, and prevailed in the culture, okay? So I call that round one. Round two is what's been going on for about the last hundred years, and we're kind of at the, the, the end of it. And I say round two, enlightenment skepticism has won. And so my heart is that there's going to be a rubber match. And there's going to be a round three. And I really think this relationship, going back to this first round, can help us think about uh, how we as Christians are to interact in an age of skepticism. Okay, So I call it the first post-Christian friendship to kind of get our, our, our sense of that. So I want to take, uh, some, some of the uh, leaders here were telling me that uh, they've been doing a series called a Second Take Series. Is that right? Kind of a second, what is it? A oh, second look? Okay, sorry. Mine's going to be new. It's going to be Second Take. <clears throat> and, uh, and, and so I want to take a second look at what does it mean to have friendships as Christians with non-Christians. And I want to explore that through this uh, friendship between two of the biggest figures of the 18th century, okay? So, you've got your Bibles. You can open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. I want to read this to you, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. A few verses here. Because this is what all of us are called to do. Once you enter into the Christian life, this is, this is you, you might be asking yourself, what am I supposed to do with my, what is God's will for my life? Uh, what we're going to read is it. Okay? It's as simple as this, but you figure out kind of how that works out in your own life, your own gifts, your own talents, where God has placed you your education, all that sort of stuff. But this, in a nutshell, is what we are called to do. This is the will of God 
for you and for me, okay? 2 Corinthians 5, chapter 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. You, if you are in Christ, are a new creation. You are new. The old is gone, the new has come. That in and of itself is one of the most revolutionary statements in the entire Bible. In Christ, you're a new creation. Let that just penetrate into yourself for a while. A new creation. That means inside of you, in Christ, Christ in you, you have everything you need. The means of your life is already inside of you. If you are living in faith in Christ. Old is gone, the new has come. The new is here. All this, verse 18, is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us what? The ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Okay, now, how many of you spend much time? Revelation 21, 22, Isaiah 60. Raise your hand if that's kind of a favorite passage of yours. Okay, usually when you say a book of Revelation, what do you think of? What's somebody going to talk about? They open up the book of Revelation. Right, the the end times, right? Something, something, something going. Uh, there's there's a there's another way to look at Revelation twenty one twenty two, which by the way is a picture of the new heaven, new earth, the new Jerusalem, and Isaiah sixty is the Old Testament picture or look of the new Jerusalem. Okay, and what you see in the new Jerusalem is what the reconciliation of the world, the universe, to God. In Christ. Christ and God are at the center of the new heavens and the new earth, at the center of the new Jerusalem. And they are the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world, right? But what do you find in there? You find reconciliation. You go into Isaiah, it starts talking about and showing you animals are at peace with each other. Anybody here ever see a little show called Animal Odd Couples? One person, I heard a laugh, and I heard another one, okay? My, my, my uh, at the time, 10-year-old daughter turned me on to this. She said, Dad, you got to watch this really cool show. It's called Animal Odd Couples. I'm like, all right, I'll watch it. <clears throat> That's called The Love of a Father. We start watching this, and it's about all these bizarre animals that have become friends. Like there is a um, like a uh, a, a horse, no, a, a, yeah, a horse and a um, a uh, what is it? It's a, a ram, I think it is, or a sheep or something. There is a dog and a deer, a dog and a deer. My favorite one is there is a a lion and a coyote. Okay, all of these animal odd couples have grown up together on different preserves around the world. They've grown up together, and they should be at enmity with each other. 
but they've grown up together and they're friends. The, my favorite scene in the whole thing is the lion that they show us when they're little, you know, and they're cute, they're cuddly, and they're, you know, you know, they're kind of playing with each other, the coyote and, and the lion. And then they show us this one adult picture and they're playing with each other. And all of a sudden, the lion opens its mouth to go after the coyote. The coyote goes scooting away. And the lion shuts his mouth. It's almost as if you can see in the lion's brain, oh, wait a minute. This is my friend. I shouldn't eat him. Okay? But his nature is saying, dinner. Okay? And, and, and so you watch this. Anyway, I'm watching this. And, of course, this is really fascinating to watch these. Yeah, I highly recommend it to you. know, Go on YouTube. You can, you can watch all the apps. You, um, um, you, know, you can watch it all night long uh, after you study. And um, binge, binge watching, right? That's what they call it, binge watching. See, I can say that. I'm like 53, so I can talk like I'm an old guy now. Binge watching, right? That's what they call it. Um, anyway, I'm watching it, and I realize that what is the common denominator in all of these relationships? There's a human being that is there with these animals in these different park reserves. And it hits me. That's, that's what we're called to do, to bring reconciliation, bring reconciliation. It's like a glimpse, animal odd couple, this may sound strange, animal odd couple is a glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth to come. It's foreshadowing. It's letting us see what it's going to look like. One more example. How many have seen the video of Christian the lion? A couple. Okay. Okay. Don't don't look on, don't don't get your phones out. And look at this. Even though it's better than anything I'm going to say, but just wait. Just wait until after this is over. Animal uh, Christian lion. It's about these two guys in the 70s. When else? Uh, who uh, end up buying a lion in London? In the 70s, you could do that sort of thing. Okay. There was an actual shop. You could go and buy all sorts of odd stuff in London, and they bought a lion. Okay, it was a baby lion. And they were, they were artists, and so they had the latest film technology. They owned the latest, you know, recorder. And, and anyway, they film it, and you can go online and watch this. And, I mean, they, this, this lion and these two guys, the relationship is so beautiful. They're like, you know, hugging. There's all these scenes. The one you want to watch goes to the Whitney Houston song, um, I Will Always Love You. You guys know that song? Right, where it hits the crescendo like 30 seconds in, which songs aren't supposed to, right? You're supposed to wait to the very end, but it hits it at the 30 seconds. I'm sorry, I'm digressing here. But uh, the, 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 so that's, that's the song. Anyway, they're showing these beautiful scenes. The lion keeps getting bigger. Now the lion's in, it's in their apartment, okay? And so they have to go to the local church courtyard to run him outside. And so they're running, and he's jumping. I mean, this stuff, you're watching. Don't try this at home. You're watching, and, and it is just beautiful. So finally, this thing gets so big that they realize probably not a good thing to have a grown lion in your apartment or in London. So they take the lion down to Africa, and there's an old movie when I was a kid called Born Free that was about this guy who who had this animal preserved down in, down in Africa. Anyway, they take it down to his place, and they, and they want to set Christian free. 
And so they, they, what this, this, this train, what I don't know what you call him, but anyway, he, what he was known for was helping to take kind of domesticated animals and train them to be wild again. Okay? Anyway, that doesn't really matter. What matters is they let him go, and a year later, they come back, and by this time, uh, Christian has uh, a wife and two little puppies, or whatever you call cubs, cubs, little cubs, and here's the final scene. Whitney Houston is hitting that high point. Can anybody sing that? And I can join that with me. We'll always love you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they look up, and Christian is on this ridge. And the two guys, they're like excited, right? This is, this is the lion. And Christian all of a sudden catches them. And you see it like in his face. All of a sudden, he's kind of, you know, going around, you know, like, Lions do. And all of a sudden, he looks down, and he sees it, and he stops. And he starts slowly going down the hill towards these two guys. Whit- Whitney's in the background. Don't try this at home. The two guys are there, arms out. And the lion speeds up. Christian speeds up as it gets closer, and he recognizes his two friends. And he runs towards them and jumps up on his hind legs and puts his head right here. And these guys are 70s guys because they have long hair too. And so he's putting his mane. They're doing their long hair, and they, like, do this. Whitney Houston's hitting her, her crescendo part, and it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Reconciliation. Reconciliation. A glimpse, a glimpse of where it's all going to end up, but also a look at what we're supposed to be doing today. Kind of makes sense, right? If we're going to end up here, that gives us a clue on what we're supposed to be doing here, okay? And so that's where I want to talk about George Whitfield and Ben Franklin. Who are they? Two of the most popular figures of the 18th century. George Whitfield is a preaching phenom. He's 25 years old. He has been preaching in England, and literally thousands of people have been coming to hear him. When I say thousands, reported crowds of 10 to 15 to 20,000 people are coming to hear Whitfield preach. Franklin's in America. Franklin is a newspaper man. And he hears about Whitfield because he has these newspapers and he wants great stories. And Franklin hears about these numbers and is an absolute skeptic. Franklin is the Enlightenment skeptic. Whitfield is the evangelical Christian. This is the beginning of what we call the evangelical movement, okay? And so in 1939, George Whitfield comes to America to begin what would be the first of seven preaching tours up and down the American colonies, okay? 
What you should think about is the American colonies in England are not that much different at this point, culturally. They're still very, very similar. And Franklin and or, uh, Whitfield in 1739 comes to America, gets off in Delaware, and goes to the south, and then he comes up, and he's coming up into Philadelphia in the fall of 1739, and there Franklin, for the first time, gets a chance to hear Whitfield's uh, preach. Whitfield was an outdoor preacher. How did this happen? Back in England, the first evangelicals, Whitfield, the Wesley brothers, some of these kinds of individuals. You ever see um, the movie Amazing Grace about William Wilberforce? Okay, That's part of that first wave of evangelicalism, a culture-changing, gospel-living, Christ-centered movement to impact those around them. And so he comes into Philadelphia, Whitfield, and Franklin can't believe how many people are there. Now, Franklin's a skeptic, and he's heard of 20-some thousand people. Well, thousands show up in Philadelphia. So what does the skeptic do when he's heard 20-some thousand have been showing up? He counts, yeah. (laughs) He also does this. He says to himself, I'm going to mark out like a space where 20,000 people could stand. And so he says to himself, what's the average size of an adult male at that time? Height, what do you think it was? 1730s. About 5'5". What do you think the average weight was? 120 pounds, 130 pounds, something like that. So he kind of thinks, how many people would fit? Oh, it's 20,000 people. And so he literally marks off a space where he estimates 20,000 people can be, and he listens. And sure enough, Whitfield must have had some kind of voice because his projection could be heard all the way to the back where Franklin was sitting. And with this, Franklin was sold on Whitfield. His first first time meeting, uh, we don't have... Uh, The information about that, but what we know is that later that day, that evening, Franklin approached Whitfield and said, I would like to be your publisher. Okay, Now, this is the time period, believe it or not, when uh, the public read sermons. They would read a journal if it was written by someone, and they would would read all sorts of religious literature. Okay, It was was big-time stuff. And so Franklin, ever the entrepreneur, ever the uh, innovator, ever the person who desires to get wealthy, sees in Whitfield a chance to make a buck. And they get together that evening, had a conversation, and Whitfield signs on with Franklin as his publisher in America. You should know that in no small part, uh, Franklin is going to become very wealthy because of the writings of Whitfield, which allows him then, what's Franklin known for? Can you tell me? Anybody tell me? What's what's maybe the number one thing people think of first? Franklin? All right, let's start this talk over. George Washington was the first president. 
Franklin is known for electricity, lightning. You ever heard that before? He is a, he's an inventor. Guess what he invents? Bifocals. Not my progressives. Bifocals. Okay? He, he invents something called the Franklin stove so that it doesn't get smoky in your house when you, when you start to stuff. He is not only uh, an inventor, he's an innovator in Philadelphia. Guess what he starts? The very first library, yes. Actually, I was teaching at a seminary when I, I first put together uh, this, this talk, this paper on Whitfield and Franklin. And one of my, my TA at that seminary uh, was a librarian at the Philadelphia Free Library, which Franklin started. And so they had all, everything that you needed to go there. Uh, what else did he start? Anybody else know? The first, what, what did you used to have delivered to your home? Right. I know you still do, but it's slowly dying, isn't it? I guess I'm kind of sad about that, but that's another story. But, it's, but, it's, uh, but the, the, he's the first postal service, okay? Innovative. And what Franklin and Whitfield, when they meet, I really believe... They saw each other in the other. They saw themselves in the other person. They both had been born into kind of working class backgrounds. Franklin, uh, when it came time for him to move on to college, there wasn't enough money to send him, even though he was at the top of his class in his, let's just call it, you know, pre-college education at that time period. When you're about 13, 14, you're ready for college. By that time, you would know Greek and Latin and, you know, all the, all the other things that you need to know, right, to get into college. And, um, uh, but he couldn't go. Whitfield couldn't go to college either because he, his family couldn't afford it. Until someone pointed out to him, in England, unlike America, in England, you could be a servant student. How would you like to be a servant student? In England, the aristocrats, you could be a servant to the aristocrats, and they would pay for your tuition. How would you like to be a servant to the sports team? Maybe some of you are. How would you like to be a servant to the women's volleyball team? A servant to the fraternity and the sororities? Isn't that great against you, the whole idea that you would have to be a servant? But this is who these guys are. Franklin ends up being self-taught. Whitfield makes it through Oxford by being a servant. And when they meet, I think they see each other. They see each other themselves in each other. And there's, a, there's an initial bond here that happens. They, they also will be some of the first transatlantic individuals. At this time period, uh, the travel back and forth has become much more common. Whitfield will go back and forth across the Atlantic on a boat seven times, Franklin five times. That's a brand new sort of individual. This is, a, this is the first beginning of what we call today globalization. Okay? This is the beginning of that, globalization. And these guys, now, it still can be a scary ride. John Wesley, when he came over uh, from England to America, got caught in a storm, and, and, and Wesley was not secure in his foundation at that point, in his salvation at that point. 
And he freaked out. Can you imagine? Have you seen the size of some of those boats? They're like this big. And uh, can you imagine a wave hitting you? I, I just can't imagine it. I, I mean, I'm securing my salvation. I still would be freaked out, you know. Wesley looks, and there's a group of small Christians called Moravians. They were a really highly dedicated group of Christians that made this incredible impact across the world as missionaries, as as impacting other people uh, in England and America, Germany, everywhere. I know I'm talking to a group of Moravians, right? And he looks over, and these Moravians are on the deck singing a hymn. And they are calm, at peace, as the waves are crashing. And Wesley writes in his journal, the great thing about this era, everybody keeps journals, so you get to actually see what they're thinking, read what they're thinking. And he says he can't believe it, and he realized he wasn't sure about his own salvation. And he gets to land, and he asks a Moravian about it, and this Moravian says, so are you sure that Jesus Christ died for your sins? And Wesley says, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world. The Moravian says, did he die for your sins? And Wesley says, yes. And in his journal, he says, but I wasn't sure that was true. And so this is the era that they live in. Later on, of course, at another famous meeting with the Moravians, Wesley will come to faith, and he says his heart is strangely warmed as he heard the preface to the writings of Martin Luther read to him, okay, at a big meeting. You never know what's going to capture somebody's heart. The preface to the writings of Martin Luther. You never know what God's going to use with your words to impact into somebody's heart. Maybe some of you are like that. Maybe there was a word said to you or something you heard strange, and it got you thinking, got you on a path, eventually led up to embracing Jesus Christ. Okay, But Franklin and Whitfield are part of that group, and they get together, and uh, it's amazing. Whit- uh, uh, Whitfield is known as an innovator as well. He brings to preaching for the first time uh, the stage. He was trained as a dramatist, and he brings to the stage a sense of drama to his preaching, a sense of drama, the very first time. It is purported, I know you're not going to believe me, I, I said the title was hyperbole and, and exaggerated. Everybody, Everything else I'm telling you is not, okay? It's reported that when he would say the word Mesopotamia, crowds would swoon, okay? The greatest actor in England at the time says that he would have given anything to be able to say the word, oh, like Franklin, like Whitfield, O-H, oh. Unfortunately, we don't have any recordings, but we have lots of eyewitness accounts. And he's an innovator because he is telling people, he's preparing people to hear the message even before he gets to a city. And so for the first time, audiences are prepared. And we have these great 
great writings from in, in the colonies of these people that will hear about uh, Whitfield is coming to so-and-so place 20 miles away. 20 miles away back then is a long ways, okay? And, and, and they talk about how they are breathless to get there. They drop the plow. They get the horse. They get their wife. And they start heading the 20, taking the 20-mile trek to get there. Okay? Innovative in getting the message out. And so if Whitfield is the greatest preacher of the era, and he is, he is, he is a rock star by the time the 1740s are coming along. That's how popular he is. Okay, this is before the founding of, the, of America. Okay, this is like 30, 40 years before. And, of course, Franklin is all these things we've talked about, but also a great writer. You've heard of Poor Richard's Almanac, perhaps? That's a, a, a collection of sayings by Franklin. He used to love to put together sayings. Maybe his most famous, I'm sure you've heard of this one, is a penny saved is a penny earned. Okay. We're still learning that, aren't we? Well, this business relationship soon turned into a loving friendship. We have letters that we still have that start to be exchanged between Whitfield and Franklin. Whitfield loves Franklin. And Franklin loves Whitfield. In one letter, we see that uh, Franklin hears from his brother in Boston that Whitfield has been in Boston. Have you been to Boston Commons in, in Boston? Whitfield preaches to 20,000 people in Boston Commons. Still there if you've been there. You can this big grassy park. 20,000 people. Franklin says this about Whitfield to his brother. He says, I'm glad to hear that Mr. Whitfield is safe, arrived, and recovered in his health. He is a good man, and I love him. I love him. And so we see this relationship <clears throat> start, to, start to grow from a business relationship, a partnership, into a friendship where they become self-supportive. Franklin loved Whitfield because Whitfield was all about you need to be a Christian, not something else. One of his famous sermons dealt with uh, this argument about what kind of denomination you should belong to. And so Whitfield put this, this sermon, this preaching sermon together. Franklin and John Adams both heard it and went wild when they heard it because this was such a revolutionary idea. Let me just read you one little part from it. Whitfield says, so Whitfield, imagine he's up there, and he's, and he's, he's play-acting, okay? And he's, he's, he's in heaven, and he's talking with Father Abraham. And he says, Father Abraham, who have you in heaven? Any Episcopalians? No. So we're all safe, right? Nobody's an Episcopalian in here, right? So we're good, we're good, we're good with it. Any Presbyterians? <laughs> no, no. Any Baptists? No. Any Methodists, the Cedars, Independents? Anybody from Illini Life? No. <clears throat> he said that. <laughs> no, no. Why, who have you there? Father Abraham says this back. We don't know those names here. Ooh, ooh, ooh. 
Oh, I love that. We don't know those names here. All who are here are Christians, believers in Christ, men and women who have overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of His testimony. Oh, I'm not Whitfield. Oh, is that the case? Whitfield is saying, then God help me. God help us all to forget party names and to become Christians in deed and in truth. And so this is the, the sort of innovative preaching that Whitfield brought to his audiences, okay? Get beyond party division. Franklin, one of the things that turned Franklin off to the gospel was in Philadelphia, the Presbyterians were always just fighting at each other, with each other. Franklin hated that, hated that. And Whitfield's message cut to the core of what was supposed to be going on. But these two individuals found ways in which to work together. Franklin still believed that he should be doing good works. And, of course, Whitfield, the the beginning of the evangelical movement was about two things always happening simultaneously. Preaching the gospel and loving your neighbor. No separation, always together. And so these two found a way to work together. And so they they, uh, uh, put together... Um, uh, funds for schools, schools for German kids. Back then, uh, Germans were um, ostracized because they weren't English. They, they founded a school for German kids. They founded a school for African-American kids. And then they found what became the baby of Whitfield, which was an orphanage down in Georgia. And this became an orphanage of hundreds and hundreds of kids would come and, and uh, have this place to go in Georgia. Now, you might say, Georgia, what you might not know, we, we've all heard of Australia, right? I want to give you softball questions first. In Australia, of course, who were the first European settlers there? We all know that, right? Because they're Aussies, right? I mean, that's cool, right? You're like prisoners. You're descendants from prisoners. Georgia was the same way. England couldn't figure out what to do with its burgeoning prison population. So what did it do? It shipped them around the world. Just shipped them out, Australia, Georgia. And so Georgia was just a place that was in chaos, as you might imagine. It's a bunch of prisoners, okay? And so he starts an orphanage there. And Franklin and Whitfield had been working together on all these things, these schools, these educational opportunities. They even built the very first building on what became known as the Philadelphia Academy, which, of course, today is known as the University of Pennsylvania, Penn, Penn University. They did that together as a place uh, to bring the Word of God, okay? And so Franklin, though, he's a Philly guy. Franklin wants the orphanage around Philadelphia. And Whitfield's like, what are you talking about? All the, you know, the worst part of the country is in Georgia. And they get in an argument about this. This is what I love about these guys. They don't just always agree on everything. 
And they get in their argument, and Whitfield wins the day, and Franklin is upset because this orphanage is going to be in Georgia. And this leads to one of the most famous stories of uh, Whitfield and Franklin. In fact, Franklin includes this story in his autobiography. Now, he's got little sections in his autobiography that talks about Whitfield. Okay? Franklin goes out to hear Whitfield preach, and Whitfield always asks for money for the orphanage. And at the end, he's doing that. And Franklin tells us, I'll, I'll, I'll read it for you because it's so good, because uh, Franklin tells us that he steeled himself that he was not going to give any money. Because he's mad, because the orphanage is not in Philly, it's in Georgia. And here's what he says. He said, I had in my pocket a handful of copper money, three or four silver dollars, and five pistols in gold. That was Spanish money. As Whitfield proceeded, I began to soften, proceeded to talk about the orphanage, and concluded to give the copper. Another stroke of his oratory made me feel ashamed of that. And I determined to give the silver. And he finished so admirably that I emptied my pocket wholly into the collector's dish, gold and all. Okay? And so this is, this is uh, uh, kind of one of, these, one of these stories here. But, but Franklin himself when he got into his 50s, when he was about my age, which back then would have been, you're getting, you're getting old. Fortunately, that's not the case now. <clears throat> and uh, he writes a letter to Whitfield because he's, he's starting to think to himself, how do I want to end my life? Not, not, I'm sorry, that didn't sound good. Um, how, what are the last years of my life going to look like? Uh, legacy, that's a word I should use. What's my legacy going to be? And he writes this to, to Whitfield. This is pretty amazing. He says, I sometimes wish that you and I, Whitfield, were jointly employed by the crown to settle a colony on the Ohio River. What a glorious thing it would be to settle in that fine country, a large, strong body of religious and industrial, industrious people. Might it not greatly facilitate the introduction of pure religion among the heathen? He's referring to the Native Americans. If we could, by such a colony, show them a better sample of Christians? This is, this is the radical deist, Franklin, writing here. I contend that this relationship between Whitfield and Franklin is going to take Franklin, the radical deist, and move him in this direction towards God his entire life. Now, as far as we know, he never came to faith in Christ. But as you'll see as we kind of come to a conclusion here, he is moving in his understanding of God. He says this, to show them a better sample of Christians, life, like a dramatic piece, should not only be conducted with regularity, but methinks it should finish handsomely. Amen to that. Being now in the last act, he thinks he's in his last act. He doesn't know the Revolutionary War is coming. And he's going to be like a founder, right? American founder. He thinks, you know, the end sometime soon. I began to begin to cast about for something fit to end with. In such an enterprise, I could spend the remainder of my life with pleasure. And I firmly believe God would bless us with success if we undertook it with sincere regard to his honor 
the service of our gracious king, and the public good. And so we start to see in this relationship, this is what I want you guys to capture this morning, in this relationship that Withfield could have just stayed at a distance. He's busy, you know, he's, he's traveling all, all over America. He's traveling all over Scotland and England. <clears throat> in this relationship, Whitfield is, is drawing Franklin closer to consider the God of the universe. And we, we get this sense from Franklin that movement is happening. They also supported each other when tough times. Franklin is going to be the person who sent when the Stamp Act is passed by the Parliament against the American colonies. Franklin is the one sent to talk to Parliament to get them to get rid of the Stamp Act. He's successful in part because Whitfield is there in the Parliament chamber with him and introduces him to all of these leading figures. Whitfield, I can't emphasize enough, is someone with incredible connections. He uses them for Franklin. Franklin is successful. The Stamp Act, if you remember, is rescinded. But you may not remember that Parliament then passed another piece of legislation saying, okay, we're going to get rid of the Stamp Act, but we want you to know, America, we can put a tax on you anytime we want. And they passed that. When Franklin came back, the American colonists castigated Franklin as a failure. And Whitfield went on the defensive for him and, and wrote letters all throughout the colonies saying, I was there. You need to know what a great thing Franklin did. Look at that friendship. A great thing he did. And the same thing happened in reverse, as is always the case, right? If you're a Christian in the public eye, what's the first thing that you're going to be charged with eventually? One of two things. What are they? Heresy. I wasn't thinking of those. That's probably true, too. <laughs> but on a personal level, hypocrisy, embezzling money. Unfortunately, we see it happen. So there's, there's, you know, there's, there's something to that sometimes. But Whitfield is going to be charged because he's always raising money for this orphanage. And he gets charged with embezzling money. And Franklin goes on his behalf. And Franklin is, has a whole network of newspapers all up and down the colonies. And he gets them started saying, we know who Whitfield is. These charges are false. So they both... They both work with each other, help each other out. And Whitfield is not afraid to share uh, with, uh, with Franklin the gospel message itself. When Franklin gets uh, his, his famous uh, experiment is successful with electricity, and he becomes a, a worldwide figure in the science community, Franklin does. In France, they especially love him. Here's what Whitfield writes to him in a letter. He says, uh, I find that you grow more and more famous in the learned world as you have made a pretty considerable progress in the mysteries of electricity. I would now humbly recommend to your diligent, unprejudiced pursuit and study the mystery of the new birth. It is a most important, interesting study, and when mastered, it will richly answer and repay you for all your pains. One at whose bar we are shortly to appear hath solemnly declared that without it, we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Whitfield says this. You will excuse this freedom. I must, 
have something of Christ in all my letters. Okay, so he started kind of saying to Franklin, you know, hey, I'm sorry, you know, I'm, I know I'm preaching at you again, but this is so central to your life. Franklin says later on in another situation he wrote about, I guess Franklin must have been preoccupied with the end of his life because he, he wrote an epitaph for himself. And he says this, the body of B. Franklin, printer, like a cover of an old book, its contents torn out, and script of its lettering and gilding lies here. Dead, says an epitaph. Food for worms. But the work shall not be wholly lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more perfect edition, corrected and amended by the author, capital A. He was born January 6, 1706, died blank, 17 blank. Okay, he wrote his epitaph. Uh, Whitfield hears about it and responds, I've seen your epitaph. <clears throat> Believe in Jesus and get a feeling possession of God in your hearts, and you cannot possibly be disappointed of your expected second edition. Finely corrected and infinitely amended. Again, we see some of this progress in Franklin's life. All the way back in 69, he wrote about his skepticism that God really cared all that much about what was going on down here. But when you zoom ahead in 1787, and a little thing called the Constitutional Convention was going on, after the Revolutionary War, Franklin, you might remember, was the one who calls for a prayer in the Constitutional Convention. A person who before wasn't even sure God cared, 20 years later, calling for prayer. And he says this, says this to the other people in the Constitutional Convention. I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. Wow, that's progress. And then listen to this. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? So Whitfield dies in 1770, dies before the whole revolution happens, the founding of this new country. But between the two of them, Franklin and Whitfield, we see this incredible work of the kingdom going on. It's, it's really pretty amazing if you think about it. Whitfield brings Franklin along for this great journey of kingdom work. And Franklin, as far as we know, never, ever gives his life to Christ. We know right at the end of his life, the president of Yale College had written him a letter saying, please tell me, Mr. Franklin, what are your views on Jesus Christ? And Franklin, in his kind of dodgy, humorous way, essentially, you know, sidesteps the answer and says, and he's an old man at this point, still thinking about his death, but he says this, he says, I really don't know 
who Jesus is, then I'm going to find out pretty soon. Yeah. But having said that, she said, oh, by the way, did you hear that? <laughs> Whitfield would have had everyone say, oh. <laughs> the, um, the, um, the beauty of this is that Whitfield didn't stay in his own little cloister, his own little closet. He got out and built friendships with whoever was willing to be there and, and work with him. And so I leave you with that to think about as you in your own life and time today and as you move forward, to think about what role God would have in the friendships that you will develop. Now, I also believe we need good Christian friends around us to support us and to keep us, um, help keep us secure in the faith. But in the context of that, I want to challenge you guys to think about what kind of relationships you can build real friendships, okay? not the cheap kind where you're trying to get to a place where you share the gospel and boom, but real relationships over time and see what God does with them. Let's pray.